0: A new software application has simple requirements for a database. The database needs to be written to and read from. The database fulfills simple needs, such as storing user information and providing the application front end with the necessary data to render a simple web page of perhaps financial transactions or blog posts or rides in a ride-sharing company. As an application becomes successful, The database grows in size, the complexity of queries increases, requiring more sophisticated logic in order to maintain performance. New databases need to be added to the overall system, as users begin to have demands for advanced features such as search or analytics. Over time, the requirements for a database expand into the need for a data platform. A data platform might include multiple databases, such as a NoSQL database, a relational database, a data warehouse, and a search index. The relationships between these different data systems can vary in terms of consistency requirements, latency, and scalability. Andrew Davidson is the Director of Cloud Products at MongoDB. In a previous episode, Andrew discussed the trade-offs of scaling databases while maintaining high-performance indexing. Andrew returns to the show to discuss the emerging subject of data platform. As a growing number of companies have data requirements beyond that of a simple transactional database, Andrew's work has increasingly involved figuring out the best ways for developers to adapt these transactional systems to providing a wider set of functionality, such as search and analytics. Full disclosure, MongoDB, where Andrew works, is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Andrew Davidson, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks so much, Jeff. Good to be back. It's been a while. Has been a while. In our last episode together, we spent a lot of time talking about the consistency properties of a database, the availability properties. We also spent a lot of time talking about what happens when a database gets big enough to start thinking about ETL jobs, alternative database solutions. In this episode, I'd like to start on a similar topic. So, when most applications start out, they have a single database, and that database has different tables for different purposes. An application usually has to expand at some point beyond that database into some kind of data platform. What are the reasons why a single database application might need to eventually build out a data platform?
1: That's a great question. I mean, I think there's a couple ways of answering it. I'll kind of go with three different ways. The first is, as your application gets more advanced, you're essentially going to want to understand what's going on inside of it. And so you're going to want to have those, essentially that global, for lack of a better word, the kind of God mode view, where you, where you can do analytics around what's happening in your application. And typically you want to query your database to do that. But the challenge can often be one of not wanting to sort of disrupt your end customer experience, while querying your database. In other words, you don't want someone having to wait while their page loads just because you're wanting to see this global view. So people will often start pulling data out of their main database, their application backend, into more of a data warehouse to do that kind of thing. Now, I have a slightly biased point of view in that I'm the director of cloud product at MongoDB. With our cloud platform, MongoDB Atlas, what you would do is enable what we call analytics nodes, where essentially you have special dedicated replicas that give you workload isolation. And what you can do is have those heavyweight analytical queries target those special nodes, and they won't disrupt the operational database portion of the workload. They therefore won't cause that person sitting there waiting for the site to load to have that slowdown experience. So that's great sort of for the first, you know, that's kind of a quick and easy way to just do reporting out of your application back end. But in practice, you know, that might go pretty far for you. You can push down aggregations to do that, et cetera. But there might come a time in which you want to do like really heavyweight analytical queries into your data that, that essentially require you to change your schema. In other words, the way you're storing your data in your application backend, even with aggregations, might just not be optimized for the kinds of queries that you might traditionally want to run out of a data warehouse. And that's where folks will sometimes do those ETL jobs, they'll pull the data out of their online database, their application backend, and put it into some other system. And that other system might have the data optimized, you know, with a better schema, maybe, maybe even columnar, et cetera. One of the things that we're seeing is a proliferation of, you know, kind of, there's a lot of long running kind of legacy data warehouses. There's some modern cloud native data warehouses. But what a lot of people are starting to do is really aim to store a lot of that data that's kind of interesting to query every so often but maybe not all the time they'll store it directly in object storage for example in s3 and that's where things start getting interesting because once the data in s3 it's incredibly cheap but it's kind of traditionally been hard to access that data it's, it's it's in a bunch of files in buckets how do you make sense of that and that's where recently in atlas we introduced in public beta something called the atlas data lake which essentially allows you to query the data that you have in your S3 directly from MongoDB Atlas as though the data is MongoDB. Essentially, you define virtual MongoDB collections that you map back to various data formats in your S3 bucket. So it could be JSON, CSV, BSON, Avro, Parquet, whatever data format you structure your data in you can query it as though it's MongoDB. And this becomes kind of an interesting use case for those long-running occasional or analytical or maybe more explorative queries that are not worth necessarily running in an online database cluster.
0: When you say that data in S3 is hard to access, are you talking about the format makes it hard to access and the fact that it's in a remote location or it's in a separate cloud provider basically or not necessarily a separate cloud provider but it's in a separate you know system it's in s3 and you know they're operating in mongo in some place and maybe they're doing an occasional export of a file to you know like some kind of file that aggregates everything in the database So are you saying it's the file format or is it the latency? Or is latency not typically a problem with these kinds of reporting jobs that we're talking about?
1: It's a great question. You know, on the one hand, with these kinds of reporting jobs, latency probably isn't the concern. But that doesn't mean latency doesn't matter because, you know, even when you're just trying to make sense of what data you've got and kind of exploring and running those initial queries, you know, latency is always important, even just for the developer who's writing those queries. But I guess what I meant by the challenge to access is, you know, S3, for lack of a better term, is kind of like, you know, quote unquote, dumb storage, right? It's, it's just a place where you can store a bunch of files. You know, traditionally, folks would use it more for binary storage, like images, movies, etc. And increasingly, we've seen this proliferation of folks storing lots and lots of text data in there. We've kind of seen folks use S3 for what they might have done, you know, with HDFS on-prem increasingly, And so all of a sudden, there's this emergence of the data lake with lots and lots of rich text data in S3, but then the challenge becomes, how do you create kind of the compute tier that can go and divide and conquer on performing queries into that data? And there's various solutions out there, but basically they all have their drawbacks, etc. And until the Atlas Data Lake was launched, there was no solution for doing that that felt fluent to a MongoDB developer. And of course, the MongoDB developer, what they love about MongoDB is that the whole language, the MongoDB query language is one that's kind of native to the object structure that developers live and breathe, that kind of JSON data model. So bringing that query language that's native to that rich structured JSON data model, where you can query, you know, very easily into sub documents, arrays, you can do aggregations on it. Bringing that to this context in S3 kind of unlocks this ability to do fluent querying on data that otherwise was a little bit dark from the perspective of the developer, if that makes sense.
0: So as we're talking about this reporting, which maybe we're doing it in S3, maybe we're just doing it in in a Mongo database that's a read-only replica, one trend in software engineering is that we have more and more applications where we want to do Online processing of this kind of data we want more rapid aggregations because maybe we're doing some kind of newsfeed recalculation on the fly or building some analytics application where we want to do a large scale aggregation very quickly. And so many times these data platforms are becoming more and more online based systems where you you wanted a, a data warehousing kind of system that is almost at the application tier. Are you seeing that as a trend among people who get to a certain point with their main Mongo instance that they maybe have been writing things that they also need for analytics workloads and they start to say, okay, maybe I need a like some kind of multi-model thing or some kind of in-memory system. How have you seen the growth of those online large data processing systems?
1: Absolutely. I mean, great question. You know, I think everyone is increasingly wanting to perform aggregations that are relevant to their end customers, for example, or, or to provide like a global views that are customer facing and that therefore are online real time. And so the real time analytics, the ability to perform aggregations against the operational data store, which is certainly something that is, you know, pretty standard practice for MongoDB anyway, is totally a common use case. You know, you, you might just I don't know. Let's say you're building a banking application. You know, showing each customer the key, you know, financial performance of their positions over the last, you know, 60 days. Let's say is a totally canonical thing to do. I think what happens in practice is you kind of show the operational view into stuff that's more recent, typically, and then there's some point at which you kind of no longer feel it makes sense to report. It's sort of no longer relevant. It's been it's long enough in the past, and it's really that older, colder data that probably moves into some more offline mode like an S3. But for the the recent stuff, absolutely. In fact, native to the MongoDB Atlas platform, we have something called MongoDB Charts, which basically lets you build those beautiful business intelligence dashboards and charts that kind of are native to MongoDB data model. In other words, rather than forcing yourself to kind of compress these rich structured document schema down into a bunch of tables to build charts on it, MongoDB Charts kind of has the awareness built in to do the unwinding of arrays and all the kind of richness of the congregation aggregation language just built in. And the really exciting thing about charts that, that just came out is that you can now embed charts in your end client experiences. So you can put a MongoDB chart in your application. You can, of course, have that chart be scoped to the appropriate end client's access. So, you know, you could have each customer see a chart from real-time MongoDB data that's easy to embed, you know, looks really good, but it's going to only show the data associated with that user so that, you know, the privacy is preserved. So these are the kinds of things that absolutely are kind of up the alley of what you were saying. But I think there's another angle on what you were saying and kind of going back to your original question, which is that the other thing that's causing folks to move away from kind of a single database model is the proliferation of microservices. In other words, folks are moving to the model of, breaking monolithic applications up into different constituent parts, typically when there's different teams involved. And that model usually is a best practice, is a model where you want to have a different database, a different backend per microservice, and have that service kind of own the data layer and provide access via APIs to the other services. And so as folks do more and more complex things involving these different services, there just becomes a proliferation of different schemas, different databases essentially around all to power an end customer experience.
0: So I I wanted to start with this discussion of data platform because you're working on a lot of different things that fit into the scope of the database platform, the, the managed database system. And, you know, dealing with these high volumes of data kind of use cases is one area, but there's also search applications. So another large data related search application is is search. So if I'm building search on top of a database, I want to have applications, you know, search applications that my users can search. That's a totally different query pattern than typical transactional workloads. What do you need to build on top of a Mongo database to have a robust search system?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. You know, basically... The really advanced search applications that are out there, you know, the way they work is they've got these really complex indexes that enable the ability to provide those incredible results that, you know, that fix the typos for you, that that are language aware, that, you know, are intelligent about word order or word order, you know, missing certain terms, etc. That ability to do kind of true fuzzy search that we're all used to because we all sit in front of Google so much every day. Applications increasingly have to deliver that value. It's kind of like, in many ways, the front door into an application is often search. And it's traditionally been very difficult to deliver search into a database natively because those indexes necessary to deliver that capability are so intense. Essentially, there's so much data that needs to be stored in such a unique structure that you would not want that structure to be on the critical right path from a consistency perspective of your database, and that's why the you know, consistency-oriented databases like MongoDB have traditionally not had the search kind of indexes built in, because MongoDB kind of wouldn't want to pay that write penalty effectively to maintain these very heavyweight indexes. And that's where there was this proliferation of an open-source solution called Lucene, where everyone started building great search applications on top of Lucene, solutions like solar and Elasticsearch. That basically enabled you to move your data out of your database, whether it was MongoDB or you know, Oracle or something else, into this Lucene-backed system and build these essentially eventually consistent indexes that could be queried. But the problem for the developer became, one, you had to do a bunch of ETL from your database over to your search engine. And two, you know at query time, you have to essentially manage, from a client perspective, access to two different systems. So we figured... You know why don't we figure out how to kind of deliver for MongoDB users in MongoDB Atlas a Lucene-based experience that's just native to Atlas and that gives MongoDB developers an experience that basically means they don't have to leave the MongoDB query language. So we've got in beta right now in MongoDB Atlas the ability to enable full text search. You can do it at the essentially at the namespace or collection level in MongoDB. And when you do that, essentially adjacent to your MongoDB database, you're going to have on the back end, a Lucene index that gets created that sits right there next to the MongoDB process on the back end of the Atlas cluster. And now within the MongoDB aggregation framework language, you can actually reach out to that search engine right there. It's eventually consistent, but it's really useful for when you want to deliver those queries that, frankly, were just very difficult to express previously in MongoDB. And it's all going to be right built in. So there's no ETL any longer. It's just fully automated. And it's with the same query syntax. So yeah, I mean, that's why we've done it. I think increasingly, you can't build an app that doesn't have search. And, and we heard that from so many of our customers that that's why we built this.
0: The last conversation we had, there was a lot of discussion around indexing. And there's this tradeoff we explored between the indexing process and having a consistent index because every time you have a new entry that's added to your database if you want to have that new database entry be indexed you know the more indexes you have the more updates to those indexes you need to make when adding an entry you know depending on how consistent those indexes are going to be you mentioned that the Lucene index is is eventually consistent. What kind of frequency of updates to the search index is there? And what does that update process look like?
1: Yeah, I mean, basically, the Lucene index can take advantage of our built in capability that anyone can leverage, by the way, in MongoDB, which is change streams, you know, you can follow changes inside of a MongoDB cluster, using our capability called change streams. In fact, we have a capability in Atlas called triggers, which essentially are serverless functions that you can power based on those chain streams. Maybe you want to push data to another service, et cetera. But inside of Atlas, we can use these chain streams to have that Lucene index be maintained very easily over time. But it, you know there is sort of an initial build phase that needs to happen before that. That can the kind of ongoing maintenance can happen. But what it means is effectively, the, the index could fall behind in a sense. For a very right-intensive workload, a very right-intensive period of time, and that means that you know when you use a search engine like this, you have to be kind of okay with a model where you might have the search engine route you to a result that might be slightly older now. Now, we're, so we're still in beta on this functionality. We'd love anyone listening. We'd love your feedback. We'd love to get you involved. You know, you can find the, the search right there in, in MongoDB Atlas today. We're still in beta on the syntax and kind of how customers are going to fully engage with this inside the aggregation pipeline. And we'd love to hear from you kind of really all the different ways you'd want to use this and and all the scenarios that you'd like uh, fully expressible in that syntax.
0: To talk more about the process of building a managed database platform, I'd like to get your experience from the two years that you've spent, well, almost two years on this project, what's been the hardest part of building Atlas so far?
1: That's a great question. We're actually, MongoDB Atlas was launched in, I believe, basically over three years ago now, the June of more than three years ago. So, Oh,
0: so you've been working out
1: for three yeah, years. Yeah. We've been out there for a while now, which is great because we're finally at that point where, you know, this MongoDB Atlas is, you know, experiencing this incredible growth at every, every kind of customer, every, you know, from the solo developer building that next startup to the, the big enterprise, you know, financial services and government type customers. And it's great to have that full range and to sort of see the full spectrum of requirements across all of those very different types of customers. You know, we, everything we do is kind of based on what we're hearing from our customers, but we always try and find that balance, you know, between. It's like I always literally imagine the solo developer trying to build that next great thing We need to be delighting them as much as we're delighting the developer inside of that bank. And we can't over optimize for either one. We just need to find the stuff that works for both of them. So the biggest challenge to sort of building this whole thing out, I mean, I think part of our challenge has long been, we wanna deliver a truly global, consistent experience for MongoDB that's elastic across the big three public clouds. So that's AWS, Azure, and Google Cloud. So a big challenge for us is that we need to be complete and total experts running a mission critical application at incredible scale on all three cloud platforms. And I think that's quite rare. You know, most customers are sort of adopting one primary cloud platform or contemplating going multi-cloud whereas we're very much ahead of the curve there having to have that full expertise for true production mission critical scale on all three. And I think just kind of keeping up with the incredible velocity of what's being introduced to those platforms keeping up with the incredible velocity of what customers expect and are trying to do on the platforms. It definitely is a challenge, but it's also kind of exciting to stay on the pulse of and to really have that global view into.
0: You are the director of cloud products. Correct. Do you feel like it's mostly a management role? Is it like a software architecture role? What What are you doing day to day?
1: That's a great question. I mean, it's, it's a mix. Product management is kind of a unique role in that we typically refer to product management with these two concepts there's inbound and there's outbound and inbound is kind of all about staying on the pulse of what customers are saying and doing and feeling about your offering and translating that back or kind of summarizing that back or providing bridges between that to the team the architecture team that's ultimately defining essentially the engineering group that's figuring out how to address what those customers need and turn that into something that we can actually action on and prioritize that against other things we can do. So that's the inbound side. And I think a key detail is that from the product manager perspective, you know, in a technical product, you want to have that kind of mind meld with the engineers. You know, you want to, you certainly want to have credibility with them, but you also don't want to come with sort of the, here's what we need to do solution mentality. It's more of a, here's what we're hearing from customers. Here's what they're trying to do, or here's some challenges they're running into. And then let's brainstorm, kind of bring out the best of the architects you have, brainstorm towards how we might solve these issues, and then prioritize amongst those, the ones that we think are going to basically benefit the most people the fastest from an investment perspective. That's inbound. Outbound is product management It's all about, okay, you know, we've built something or we're executing on a roadmap, prioritize based on you know, what I was just talking about. Once we have this new functionality or new capabilities and we're bringing it to market and you know, helping our customers use it, it's all about just ensuring that. Everything that needs to happen for those customers to reach it, to understand it, to successfully leverage it are happening. So that could be anything from, you know, ensuring that your documentation is solid to ensuring that your customers have a direct line for feedback, to running beta programs, to everything in between. So yeah, in a director role, it's a mix of all those things. But, you know, you have people reporting to you who are also doing that because you, you have a big enough platform that you have to divide and conquer on sort of all the different areas of the, of the stack, essentially. Mm
0: let's get into talking about architecture and engineering describe the software architecture for mongodb Atlas to the extent that you can describe it
1: yeah I mean that's a great question so at a high level mongodb you know itself a, a typical mongodb database cluster is a distributed system now the way we operate mongodb Atlas is every Except for, let me put on the side for a moment what we call our shared tier, which is kind of like the starter tier for people just getting started. I'll talk about that in a minute. But for sort of the dedicated clusters, which is $60 a month and above, so a pretty low price point to start out with. For dedicated clusters, we basically are deploying from Atlas dedicated MongoDB environments on dedicated cloud instances for each of those clusters, for each of those customers. And on the back end of that, effectively, every customer has one or more VPCs in the cloud provider of their choice. So, you know, if you deploy into AWS into a particular region, we're going to build for you a VPC on the back end in that particular AWS region. If you then deploy what we call the M10 kind of, you know, the smallest dedicated cluster, 60 bucks a month, we're then going to spin up three compute instances spread across the three availability zones in that target region. And then we're going to basically, using our automation framework, kick off a distributed MongoDB cluster across those three nodes. So we need to ensure that essentially those three nodes can reach each other over the network. That's a critical thing. And then we need to ensure that those nodes have the ability to kind of push back to our cloud mothership, all the monitoring necessary for us to, to really run this global system at scale and for everything to be automated. So effectively, we have a control plane that is sort of running centrally, not not in the context of all of these dedicated customer environments. And that control plane is kind of the place where all of the monitoring and health information and the declarative you know, goal states that the customers have described that they want, like what kind of cluster where. And that control plane is where our application runs that really is responsible for sort of delivering all of that globally. And that application, it's written in Java, it basically goes out to all those cloud endpoints, you know, whether it's AWS, Google Cloud, or Azure, and it hits all the necessary APIs and you know, it starts all the necessary instances, et cetera, to enable this whole concept that I've just described. Once it's started all of that, then it kind of passes the job off to our agents that run locally on those boxes on the back end of those customer clusters, and those agents will start the MongoDB environments, essentially from there, the customer can get their connection string and be off to the races. But if a customer, for example, were to come in and, and enable our VPC peering, or leverage our IP whitelisting capability, then we're going to be on the back end driving those API calls again, you know, whether it's kicking off a VPC peering connection from their own AWS VPC to the Atlas side VPC, or if it's an IP whitelist entry, we'll be simply updating their security groups on the firewall on the EC2 instances in that customer's environment. So If that makes sense, these are all of the things that we have to do in order to manage Atlas. And of course, there's a lot more that I'm not going into. And there's quite a bit there, as you can imagine.
0: So Atlas was started before Kubernetes was popular, right? Like three years ago, I'm trying to remember when exactly the industry centralized around Kubernetes. I think it was...
1: It was basically, yeah, Kubernetes kind of emerged emerged as the victor, I would say, right around the time we were kind of launching Atlas. I remember the prior year, it was kind of like, you know, is it Mesos? Is it Kubernetes? Is it Docker? And then it really, yeah, that was really the time in which the
0: consolidation Container orchestration (laughs) wars. We had a lot of shows about that. That was like a year and a half into Software Engineering Daily, and that was like... the most confusing time for me. I was like, oh, why are there so many of these things? I don't get it. Could somebody explain it? And nobody could explain it because they all had their like interest. they were like, oh no, it's us. Like we're the best one. Yeah, it was a
1: crazy you time. Know? It was challenging for us too because you know a lot of folks were trying to manage databases in containers at that time. Oh, God. And obviously there was a lot of risk to doing it because it was mostly for stateless apps originally. But once we saw the kind of Kubernetes really kind of emerge as the standard, yeah, that kind of made it clearer for everyone.
0: So what was the original architecture when you were when you were in the midst of this stuff? Like, did you choose Mesos? Were you on Mesos, or did you did you even use a Container Orchestrator? Yeah. So no, we for Atlas we didn't go down the container
1: path just because for stateful applications like databases it wasn't it, there just wasn't a oh, need to. Oh, of course, to, of course, okay. You know, because we're going with ultimately dedicated cloud instances backing our. Dedicated customer environments. We just didn't need that that kind of thing as much. Yeah. Now that's not. To, now we have, interestingly enough, make MongoDB something that you can run with a Kubernetes operator using our Ops Manager. But that's really, in my view, more for like on-prem workloads. If you've got that private cloud on-prem and you're not able to leverage Atlas in the public cloud, you can now run MongoDB in Kubernetes. So we totally built that out. It's just something we don't use in Atlas because it's really we don't need it. And if you're I guess my key guidance would be if you're in the public cloud and you're using Kubernetes, then almost certainly what you're doing is running your app tier in Kubernetes and then you're using databases delivered as a service plugged into them. So that's certainly the way we see people use Kubernetes with Atlas is you run Atlas for your database workload. You can have a consistent experience in any cloud in any region that way easily. And then you can have your Kubernetes application tier orchestrated for you know easy scalability of the app tier. And that'll just connect to Atlas with a connection string. And in fact, we're in the near term going to release an open service broker API, which is kind of a Kubernetes infrastructure as code tie in for Atlas. So you'll be able to essentially from a Kubernetes context, more or less request an Atlas cluster on demand and get those bindings back. We're doing the same thing with Terraform, by the way. There's a nice Terraform provider that a gentleman in the community created, and we're now building an official one as well. For Atlas, so, so folks, that's kind of the big trend we've seen in the cloud paradigm is just infrastructure's code, give me a database on demand, snap my fingers and there it is declaratively. Whereas on prem, you can actually go down that plumbing road of building your database into Kubernetes, which we can avoid in the public cloud.
0: Has Kubernetes made it easier to run MongoDB Atlas itself for you?
1: That's a great question. We don't
0: run Kubernetes
1: in the back end of MongoDB Atlas today. I think and certainly in the future, it might be something to to look at more and more. But what I'll tell you, what Kubernetes has made easier for us is it's made it easier for our customers to adopt what they perceive as a multi-cloud or at least a multi-cloud ready architecture. Even if customers today are often still starting single cloud, a lot of our customers really value that sense that they're, they don't feel locked into a particular cloud platform. And by adopting Kubernetes at the app tier, there's these great synergies with Atlas at the data tier where both make it really easy to have a consistent experience if you wanted to eventually move between cloud platforms. And even if you don't actually do the move, just kind of having the sense that you can, having that posture in terms of your relationship with your cloud platforms is something that a lot of our customers really value. So it's been really interesting to see kind of Google, you know, make Kubernetes happen. And it's been really interesting to see this incredible growth of the Google Cloud platform. And we see a lot of customers really on all three cloud platforms now going all in on Kubernetes for their app and then just connecting to it from Atlas. So that's been a great accelerator for us.
0: Let's come back to that discussion of different cloud providers. Has the appetite for... Multi-cloud grown, and can you help me understand why companies want to be multi-cloud? What is the driving desire for multi-cloud? Sure.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's. I think there's a number of desires. Some folks have come at it from a purely availability perspective. You know, that some folks like the idea that if a true cloud provider goes down, that they could be spread across multiple, and that's something that you know is, is a great vision but I, a lot of folks in practice are not ready or prepared to build a truly multi-cloud architecture so that it's kind of more aspirational. You know, that sounds... Wait, hold on.
0: Let's just pause on that one because that's that's something I want to drill into. Is it even rational to do that, you know, to have aspirational architecture like that?
1: Well, so it, it's funny you say that because at a starting point, it sometimes sounds like, eh, you know, what are you really trying to achieve here? Like if AWS US East 1 is down, you can kind of chalk it up to basically the whole internet feels down and therefore what are we really trying to achieve being the only ones who somehow stayed up in that paradigm or whatever but when you look there's a lot of local contexts in which this sort of does make more sense or it becomes more apparent so for example if it's really important to you that you have multi region availability it's not so much that you care about multi cloud availability simply multi region but your country is one in which you need to keep the data in the country maybe it's you know a sovereignty thing, which is very common for a lot, of, a lot of use cases. If you're in a country that a particular cloud provider only has a single region in, which is very common, like you know, maybe in the UK, there's only one AWS region, then all of a sudden you might say, look, I want to know there's an easy way for me to have like, multi-region availability in the UK. And maybe you would look to the ability to use both the AWS UK region and the you know, Azure and potentially Google Cloud UK regions just to solve that problem. So if you're kind of like a bank in the UK, it all of a sudden starts making more sense from your perspective, if that makes sense. Because multi-region availability is something that I I think, even in all intellectual honesty, most of our customers that I talk to probably still are single region, probably, I don't know, probably just over half are single region, but a very large and growing minority of them are, are aspiring to at least be spread across multiple regions. And doing that in a context in which your cloud provider has only one region in your country, that can be limiting.
0: Well, you're talking about availability in the sense of uptime. I think we could also think about availability in the sense that, although we haven't seen this at scale, at least not for a while in the major cloud providers, there is the risk of data loss. Like, we don't really know, you know, I can't give you a proof that AWS is architected in such a way that there is zero tail risk of them losing some large number of S3 buckets, like permanently. Right? Like nobody could give you that proof except maybe somebody at AWS. So the idea of of being multi cloud just for the sake of data protection, I think I think that is a legitimate architectural move to make. I don't, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. And then I also want to share your. Your appreciation for the data provenance question, I actually think that's a pretty nice opportunity for Atlas just in terms of being able to provide that data provenance solution. Like, I think that's a really good reason for people to go with a very, very dedicated, fleshed out database platform is this data provenance idea. Because that is, I mean, you know, all signs point to that just being an increasing headache with, you know, GDPR and just other various national data policies that vary significantly. Yeah, big time.
1: You know, I I think it's one of these things where like GDPR, you know, great respect to the European regulators there. I know, you know, obviously, some people in our community are frustrated by it. But look, the reality is they're looking out for from a privacy perspective for all of us setting a bar that hopefully all of us will benefit from seeing California follow suit is great. And yeah, we have to make it easy for developers to build modern applications that can adhere to these requirements. And as long as we do that, then the best of both worlds is found. We can still build great businesses, apps, et cetera, on the tech side, and we all get the benefit of this modern privacy stature. And yeah, you're probably aware of our MongoDB Atlas global clusters, where in a single connection string, you can read and write from different parts of the cluster in different parts of the world. And actually, you basically embed the customer's location with a country code into your document schema. And when you do that with these global clusters, the document literally goes to the portion of the cluster nearest to that country code. And you can sort of start small, maybe you start with like just US and Europe. But then over time, you can add in like, you know, Singapore, you could add Taiwan, you could add Mumbai to reach India. And all of a sudden, you, you know, as long as the cloud provider has a region there, You can reach and keep data in one contiguous cluster that can do global aggregations, all with the people's data staying near them. But of course, data localities is only part of the equation. I think another key part of this privacy first approach is thinking about how we store our data, changing literally changing what it is that we feel comfortable just writing into a database. Even with all the great security that we have built into Atlas, you know, we're, the whole idea of Atlas is to democratize it for app devs so they can move fast and always have that baseline of encryption at rest, TLS encryption over the wire, authentication, firewall, all those things are just always on in Atlas. And that's great. But there's so much more that can be done as developers, the responsibilities on your shoulders to, you know... Even if the data tier is pretty secure, you know, your, your app has to also be secure. So one thing that we just launched in our 4.2 release is essentially field-level client-side encryption, where you can encrypt certain fields in your documents, in your schema, and they'll be encrypted through your AWS KMS before the document actually goes to Atlas. Now, when this happens, you give up some of the query ability. You can't do range queries on those encrypted fields any longer. You can do point queries on them, however. But the advantage is you're now offloading to your KMS the encryption management that's happening in your application. And you can you can do all kinds of advanced stuff with this. You could you know, potentially drop keys associated with particular users, which gives you kind of an easier story to erasure, et cetera. And also, you basically are, are you're ensuring that the confidentiality is preserved, frankly, specifically to your application so that basically anyone at a lower level of the stack, including MongoDB, MongoDB Atlas, simply can't decrypt that data that you've put in. So this this makes sense for kind of the highest data classification level, the stuff that needs to maintain the the highest levels of privacy and confidentiality. And then of course, for other kinds of data, you know, you can use other capabilities in Atlas, like the bring your own key for encryption key management, or just rely on our built-in encryption at the storage tier which is fine for many use cases as well.
0: That example of the data locality, I was just, as you were talking about that, I was thinking about that would be a hard system to test. So, you know, if you're thinking about something like data locality and you want to test a data locality-based solution for AWS, you've got to set up the right kinds of, measurement systems, you need to set up, I mean, some kinds of, I'm not even sure what that testing infrastructure would look like. But with the data locality stuff, as an example, maybe could you tell me about how you think about testing and certifying that the database platform is doing the things that you want it to do?
1: Yeah, I think that makes sense. So I'll tell you how the back end of MongoDB Atlas global clusters work. They leverage a capability in MongoDB sharding called zoned sharding. And the advantage of that being the case is this is kind of a well-understood part of the you know, open source community MongoDB that you can you know, totally understand what's happening. In other words, there's no magic there. But what we do is this very opinionated form of zone sharding where essentially we map those two-letter ISO country codes to a particular zone in the cluster. And you choose which zones you're in, like which regions you're actually in. And then you you actually in the Atlas UI as as the end user of the global cluster, you can actually, we, we will by default just map those country codes to the nearest zone and you can explicitly override those mappings however you see fit. So it's all sort of transparent to you how it's working. And then from there, you know, MongoDB sharding handles kind of ensuring that that data is stored in the right zone within the cluster. Now, using this in practice for it to really be, sensible and to really deliver an end customer experience that gives them those sort of CDN style of regional latencies for operational data. For that to be possible with MongoDB Atlas, you, you know, there's a lot you need to do above Atlas, above the global cluster. You need to have a global load balancer. You need to have a global application tier. Otherwise, it's sort of a bit of a moot point, although perhaps some applications just storing the data at rest in the right locations alone, very valuable. But Well, we really built this with the assumption that customers would use this to deliver in-region latencies as well as sovereignty for that data. But because it's using sharding, you know, there's, there's sort of no magic there, and it's something that people can understand. People who understand the MongoDB architecture, which obviously there's a lot of documentation out there about how it works.
0: There are other techniques that you may need to employ to get the most important data into a place where it is most easily accessible so data locality is obviously one mechanism there's also different forms of caching and getting different parts of data warm and leaving other parts of data that are less likely to be touched cold and there's different kinds of storage tiers you could put it in different locations do you have any other examples of this warm versus cold data trade-off that you make? in Atlas? Great question. I mean, you know, at a high level, so MongoDB on the back
1: end, the storage engine is called Wired Tiger. Wired Tiger is a very advanced storage engine. It it basically does the management of what stays in memory internal to itself. But you can sort of imagine that it's one of these things where the last used page is what eventually will be evicted from, from cache in general. It's hard to come up with a better memory management solution than that, frankly. It's obviously a big problem, though. So a lot of folks you know, wonder, do I need to use a caching solution adjacent to MongoDB? But of course, doing that has a lot of downsides. You sort of need to query, again, two systems. You have to do the ETL. What we typically find is that most people who assume they need that, that's because their experience comes from a more legacy database offering. And that with MongoDB, for data that's in memory, you get caching latencies for that data. And if it's not in memory, there's a good chance that you didn't need it as quickly anyway, because that's because it wasn't recently touched. But you know, there's certain classes of, of data where maybe you want like a small subset of your data to always be snappy to return, even though that data is seldom accessed, meaning it may not always be in memory. And that's where people can use various strategies to kind of put a background thread that is always touching that and keeping it in memory, etc. But I think You know, Atlas performance is always excellent because it's always SSDs on the back end. But really what happens in practice is, folks, it's not that they're saying, I want more performance. It's that they're saying, I want to pay less to have less performance for data that very rarely gets touched. And that, I think, brings us full circle to this notion of of the Atlas data lake on S3. You know, increasingly customers, like if if your data that's older than 60 days has essentially 0.01% access rates, kind of like you know, scrolling down in your Facebook newsfeed, like nobody's going past some level of history there, it's totally reasonable to not want to keep that online and, you know, on SSDs and pay for that in Atlas. And that's where we, we also see another use case online for the data lake would be to just move that data to S3, and when that customer of yours scrolls far enough down in their newsfeed, effectively, you know, that takes longer to load, and that's something that our users all expect anyway because they get it. I mean, they're, they're kind of programmed to get that from their Facebook experience. So giving you that consistent MongoDB experience for data that was once online and has now moved offline into S3 is something that we see as a use case for Atlas Data Lake. Now, I will note that we don't today in Atlas Data Lake sort of move the data from an online Atlas cluster to S3 for you. You've got to do that yourself. I think it'll be interesting to kind of explore that space and get customer feedback around what kinds of patterns would really help make all that easier over time. And maybe eventually we will do some of that for you. I think that'll be very likely.
0: Let's talk a little bit about security. Security is obviously a core component of what somebody would want out of a database system. What are the features that you've built around security? And what have been some of the difficult engineering problems in implementing those security features?
1: Sure. I mean, You know, there's millions of people out there who will download a piece of software and, you know, sort of turn it on and use it really taking the simply the shortest path to using it. And because that's the case and because we wanted to ensure that no Atlas customer should ever be able to shoot themselves in the foot, we made a very hard decision early on that we're simply not going to allow our customers to disable the core bedrock security capabilities. So, for example, you just can't disable authentication. You know, occasionally a customer will ask, like, why I don't want to use authentication for X, Y, and Z reason, or, you know, maybe I don't want to use authentication because we don't. I don't want to have to have that, even just the time required when you're creating a connection to authenticate. There could be folks who, who don't want to have to build an app that's, that's comfortable with a little bit of time to do an authentication handshake. And that's one of these things where you have to, when you're building a cloud database offering, you have to have that hard point of view of just... Don't give in on that particular one because the customer will regret it in the end. And I think our customers broadly do in the end appreciate that. And the same goes with TLS. I mean, authentication is fairly easy to enable in a database if someone's self-managing. Whereas TLS, where you started to do TLS certificate management and all the rest, that's something that self-managed MongoDB users really do struggle with. And that's just not an easy one. You have to be a domain expert. There's so many easy ways to frankly, do it wrong, make a mistake. So in Atlas, by essentially using TLS, requiring TLS, ultimately having the certificates be coming from a trusted certificate authority that can be validated based on the standard bundle on any operating system, that, again, just democratizes having ironclad encryption over the wire. And if maybe this would sound obvious to everyone, but not everyone even knows what TLS is. TLS is basically the modern acronym for what we used to call SSL. The standard changed transport layer security, TLS is kind of the new nomenclature for it using new protocols. Sometimes people will still refer to it as SSL, but basically it's the thing in your web browser that says HTTPS, but for us, it's at the data tier. So you shouldn't use a database that doesn't use that. And obviously with Atlas, we just require it, make it easy for folks. And I think that's a huge democratizing capability. And then with, you know, security at rest, or excuse me, encryption at rest, With optional layers above, like I mentioned, you can bring your own key optionally for that, or you can optionally now encrypt before the data comes into the database. That's another key one. Then there's the network level security. With Atlas, by default, the firewall doesn't allow any network access in, and you have to explicitly choose to whitelist particular IPs or to whitelist private IPs and leverage peering. Building all of that and making it easy to set up so the customers don't have to figure it out on their own, I think is just a game changer for application developer security.
0: All right. Well, let's begin to wind down the conversation. What will people want out of a database platform in five years?
1: I think in five years, folks will expect that they can just basically turn on the database, connect to a connection string, and automagically everything just works. You don't have to think about sizing. You don't have to think about indexing. You're still going to probably have to have some level of thought around your schema. But the hope would be that you kind of throw a schema in there, and then you throw a workload pattern at that, And the database will do whatever it can its darndest to automatically, you know, size and scale and provision and index so that you basically have as good of a performance experience as you can, at least for the amount you're willing to pay for it. And I think kind of we're seeing more and more of that. We're seeing more auto scaling capabilities. You know, Atlas has various forms of auto scaling. You know, we're seeing more index guidance. Atlas will do index suggestions based on the query workloads you've seen. But I think we're going to see a lot more of that, and customers are just going to basically say, I want to have no cognitive overload, and I just write an app, and the database just handles the rest.
0: Final question. I've been doing some shows on, I guess what you would call low-code tools. So there's this this growing number of low-code tools that engineers could use, non-engineers could use. There are things that look like spreadsheets. There are things that just look like drag and drop, you know, tools. There's just various forms of whatever is this low code trend. Totally. And there's also obviously a growing number of APIs that do complex things. You've got the twilios and the stripes and the all the other things in the API economy. Are we going towards a place where your back end is entirely just a little bit system that interfaces with APIs and low code tools and maybe have a few like functions as a service, but are we seeing the disappearance of backend software? I think that's an interesting question.
1: I think we are seeing
0: more software,
1: more data, more customers expecting digital experiences than ever before. And as a result, all of this is growing super fast. And so we've like everything is growing. Even back-end software is growing while we're introducing growing low-code front-end experiences. So I think this is a new space because it, basically the expectation is that people who are not software developers should be able to build business processes more so all the time. And so that's what low-code is all about in my view. But there's still so much sophistication that needs to go into, you know, whether you're building one of those platforms, like, you know, the people who build those platforms, they need to have a database to run it on. We see many of them building them on top of Atlas, in fact. But if you're building a non-low-code app, aka like a true brand-defining app for your customer, for your company, true differentiator for your business, then you're going to have to really think about it end-to-end. But yeah, I think we're seeing a shift towards, I want to offload anything that's not differentiating. I shouldn't have to rebuild an SMS-sending solution. I'm going to use Twilio for that. I shouldn't have to build a PCI-ready credit card processing solution. I'm going to use Stripe for that. And I shouldn't have to you know, build a, a, a massive database management capability inside in the house. I can use MongoDB Atlas for that, et cetera. We're absolutely seeing everyone move to higher level of abstractions, including business types who are moving from spreadsheets into these low-code solutions. But I think developers, there's only more and more developers as well, and they won't be using the low-code solutions. They'll be building those customer-critical, because developers are so expensive, they're such a key resource, they're going to be focused on the most brand-defining, business-critical experiences. And if they're not, then you know that there's probably something problematic in that organization.
0: Andrew Davidson, thank you for giving me your thoughts on something fairly unrelated to, to databases, but I'm sure that impacts your work. You got to know these trends and oh, think no. about how it- All the time
1: we think about this because the amazing thing about being at the data tier is that we have a global visibility into what everyone's doing everywhere. The whole market is using general-purpose database like MongoDB for everything you can imagine from IOT to banks to dating apps to some of the largest games. So yeah, it's great to kind of get that exposure and to see the trends. And yeah, I appreciate the
0: question. All right, Andrew, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Jeff. Have a great rest of your day there.